This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Philip Glass is celebrating his 75th birthday today. That's why this evening was chosen for the U.S. premiere of his Symphony No. 9 at Carnegie Hall. Glass was one of the founders of what is often called minimalist music, or pattern music. He started off writing for his ensemble and went on to write operas, dances, and film scores. Here's an excerpt of his new symphony, performed by the Bruckner Orchestra from Linz, Austria, conducted by Dennis Russell Davies, who is also conducting this evening's performance. The recording was released today on iTunes. Glass was interviewed by Ira Glass, the host of This American Life, in 1999. Ira is Philip's second cousin, although they didn't know each other well when they spoke on stage at the Field Museum in Chicago. Lucky for us, Ira didn't broadcast that interview on his show, but he gave it to Fresh Air to play, which we did back in 1999. We're going to listen back to an excerpt of it. We, we, we are first cousins once removed, which means that you're my dad's first cousin. That's right. And... Um, the conversation that we had before this show was just long enough to play some Jewish geography mm-hmm. um, to relieve you all of the burden of hearing it. And um, our families both lived in Baltimore. By the time I was old enough to sort of be awake to anything, you had moved first to Chicago and then here. Then yeah, I, was then here in, I was in Chicago for about five years, Yeah, 52, 52 to 57. Well, that was before I was born. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> By the time I was sort of awake enough to know that you existed, you were in uh, New York and then in Paris and, yeah. and then back in New York. Um, your father owned a, a record store. First of all, I've heard, I've heard that, you've, that you actually worked in the store sometimes. Oh, I, I worked there from the age of 12. Really? I worked in there until I was in my 20s. And uh, do you remember what music was playing and what music... Well, all uh, kinds of music. Playing. In those days, uh, you could... Those were the old seven, days of 78s, and, and no one worried about... All the orchestras were scratchy anyway, so you could play anything. So we played music all the time. I eventually became... By, by 15, I became a, the, the classical record buyer for the store. And I learned a lot of... Because I was the one that ordered the records, because my father, Ben Glass, that would have been your great uncle, yeah. uh, he, he was a self-taught... He knew a lot about music, but he, he really learned it all by himself. He didn't have a... Uh, 
music education background. Would he play you songs and composers and say, oh, yeah. listen to this part, listen to this part? No, you know what, he, what was interesting, Art, was that um, we had a very interesting collection of records at home. His history is actually interesting. He began, actually, this is how it began. He began as an auto mechanic. And then at a certain point in the 1930s, people started putting radios into cars. And so he began fixing the radios just the same way as he fixed the cars. He learned mm -hmm. how to fix radios. Then he got interested in the radios and got rid of the cars and just had a radio shop. <laughs> then someone told him that he should sell some records in the radio shop. And gradually, over uh, 10 or 15 years, the, part of the record part became bigger and bigger and bigger. And at the end of his life, the radios were just a tiny bench in the back of the store, and he used to fix radios there. So he came to music that way. And then what he had at home, and he didn't know much about music, but he would buy these records and he would take them home. Uh, the ones that he couldn't sell, he would take home because he wanted to listen to them to see what was wrong with them. <laughs> you know, he said, well, there must be something wrong with this music. And he figured, well, if he could figure out what was wrong with it, then he would know what the other... So the music we had at home were like Shostakovich string quartets, Music for, that was modern for that time. And why was Shostakovich not selling in well, Baltimore? Well, we're talking the about the 1940s. Yeah. Uh, when uh, uh, we're talking about pieces that were new uh, yeah. at that time, and the idea of classical music was really uh, uh, the European 19th Romantic tradition. So anything that was modern at all was uh, had a difficult time. Uh, so we had what we ended up at home with was a collection of very esoteric music. What happened is that the more he listened to this music, the more he liked it. Yeah. And he ended up liking all this strange music that no one else listened to. And then he became an advocate for this music. And this, people, I witnessed this many, many times. People would come to the store and he would try to sell them all this new music that he said, you know, I bet you never heard this guy Britton. Now this guy, Brenton Britton, is a really terrific composer. And he would practically give these, push these records on people. And he, <laughs> and he had any number of, uh, of uh, people in Baltimore whose music taste, musical taste was formed by this. It was a very simple, people came in and they listened to music and they learned by listening and they, they explored things they didn't know. And, and I witnessed this transaction. Oh, I have to tell you the really interesting story. Did I ever t I should tell you what my very first job in the store was. You see, in those days, uh, this is the days of 78, and every record store had what was called, uh, you had, a, a, you had a, an allowance, a return privilege, it was called. That was the actual word. It was a return privilege for broken records. Wait, if you, if you would take the record home and break it? No, you no, could no. Bring it back? No. If, no, it didn't work that way. Uh, no. If you, were the, if you had the store and some records arrived and they were broken. Oh, I understand. So, for, so, you, so the, the, the merchant could return the records. It was right. called the return privilege. And it was, a strict, it was something like, the way they figured it out, they made it something like 5% of the records could be returned. Right. Now, what happened was that uh, you didn't actually break 5% of the records, but you could return 5% of the records. So what you had to do, if you wanted to return records and get your money back, you had to break them. <laughs> That's cute, So huh? that was your job? My first job. <laughs> my brother and I were, on, 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 on the weekends, we, we went down to the store and we were sent to the basement and we jumped on records. <laughs> we, we were, we... Uh, and, a good uh, preparation for what was to come. <laughs> <laughs> well, a that's a kind way of putting it. Well, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, my, uh, I gradually well, worked my way... What? And, and classical, classical music... Didn't matter. Yeah. The, uh, it didn't matter what you broke. Eddie Fisher. Uh, it, 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 they yeah. counted it by the label. Right. Uh, and you, you, did it by the, you did it by the company, so there would be, and there would be companies like OK Records or 
uh, Blue uh, or Blue Note records or uh, RCA records, they all had a return privilege. But the only thing is that all the RCA records had to be in their box, and all the broken OK records had to be in their box, and all the broken uh, Bluebird records had to be in their box. You couldn't mix boxes. But they didn't really care what was on the record. They just had to be broken. <laughs> anyway, so I, I, that was my first pay. Well, I wasn't actually paid, but that was my first professional job in, music. in the music world. <laughs> and in 1964, you moved to Paris, and you studied with Nadia Boulanger. Could I ask you to talk about what she was like and, and what you well, learned from her? Well, she was so... You know, I don't like to talk... You know, are there any Boulanger students here in the room? <laughs> I always get into trouble when I talk about it because actually she wasn't a very nice person. She was a wonderful teacher who was the great master of, of, of music technique, of counterpoint, of harmony, of analysis. And uh, she was extremely, uh, uh, how can I say, demanding. Uh, from the first moment you walked in, for example, if you arrived at the door for, of, of, of the apartment, if you were as much as a minute late, it was better just to go home. <laughs> because if you came in late, you, were, you got such a, 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 an abuse. You were uh, criticized on every level of your being and character. And <laughs> so basically, if, if the metro was slow that day, if you got off at the wrong stop, and you just went home. And there was something that the students called Black Thursday? Oh, yes. Like there was a general lesson of analysis that all the students went to, maybe 30 or 40 people. It was not a very large living room that she taught in. And then there was the Black Thursday class, and we were convinced that she put together her eight of her students. She took the four best ones and the four worst ones and put them together. But you couldn't tell which you were. We couldn't tell which was which. <laughs> By the time she got done with us, we were just... Oh, it, it, all, those lessons were devastating. They would go, those classes went on for three or four hours. And they began at 9 o'clock and went to about 1. Describe a typical exercise. Um, well, I'll give you one. Uh, there were some very funny. This is one that I, that's, I was very fond of because it was so, it, it was so sinister. Uh, <laughs> you walked into the class and uh, into the room, and we were all there, of course, on time, for sure. And on the piano would be uh, uh, just a line of music written in tenor clef, which is not a common clef, but you're supposed to know it. Okay, so first of all, there are seven clefs. Probably most of you know two. If you know any, you may you may have three clefs, but you're supposed to know seven. And you, and the first thing you do with her is you learned all seven. And she said, uh, Danielle, before we begin the lesson today, would you just play the harmony that goes with this melody? And Danielle would play the first chord. And she says, oh, my God, how can you play that chord? And she said, okay, Paul, you play it. So she went through the room until we got the first chord right. Then we did the second chord, the third, the fourth, the fifth. And finally, three or four hours later, she had beat us into completing this four-part harmony exactly the way it was supposed to be. And then she said, well, you know, she said, my dear children, she said, she said I, I really didn't expect to spend the day like this because, in fact, I thought you would know this. And she, behind the music rack, she pulled out, it was uh, the second movement of a, a, of a Beethoven violin piano sonata, and, uh, and it was, uh, basically, she, she merely had expected us to re replicate exactly the voice leading that Beethoven had done. From one of the melody lines to recreate And she said, well, of course, if you, had, if you knew the piece, it would have been easy. <laughs> <laughs> well, she picked, a verse, she picked something that no one knew. And then, and the fact that we had done it, uh, uh, actually, it was kind of a miracle that we had done it at all. Uh, uh, she succeed. Let's put it a different way. She succeeded in 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 eliciting from us the exact voice leading of the original. It, it took four hours. Do you think that, there, that there's a pedagogical efficiency to to terror? 
you know, I, fi- I tell you, I finally, after I've been there about two years, I finally figured out why I was there. We were having a lesson, and I had come in with my harmony. We came to a place in the music, and she said, this is wrong here. And I said, Madame is Boulanger, it's correct. I, I, I cited the rules of voice leading. I said, all these things are correct, and there's nothing wrong with it. She said, yes. She said, but uh, if Mozart had done it, she would have done it like this, and she played the correct version, which was that perhaps the soprano was in the, the third was in the soprano instead of the, the root of the chord was in whatever I had done, I'd done it wrong. And I looked at her and I said, but the rules are right. She said, yes, but it's still wrong. I was astonished. And I, it, it was at that moment that I understood what she was teaching me. I realized that she was teaching the relationship between technique and style. For example, now let's put the question another way. If you listen to, let's say, a measure of Rachmaninoff and, and then a measure of Bach, you know which is which without, you know, immediately. And the question is, well, why do you know that? They both are following basically the same rules of, of, of uh, harmonic, of voice leading for the, but what happens is that you have in your, the course of your listening, you have taught yourself, uh, you've recognized that Rachmaninoff will always solve a certain problem in a certain way. You may not say that to yourself, but your ear will tell you that. And then Bach will do it in his way. And, and you say, oh, that sounds like Bach or that sounds like Rachmaninoff, or that sounds like Stravinsky. And what you're hearing is, let's put it this way, you're hearing the predilection of the composer to resolve a technical problem in a, in a highly personal way. So, in other words, now let's... And from that point, how, how hard is it to design your own personal well, way to solve the, it? this is the point. The point is, uh, and, and this is the other thing which she didn't say in words that day, but which I understood totally, which is that in order to arrive at a personal style, you have to have a technique to begin with. In other words, when I say the style is a special case of technique, you have to have the technique. And to, you have to have a place to make the choices from. Yeah. If you don't have a basis on which to make the choice, then you don't have a style at all. You, you, have, a, a, you have a series of, of accidents. Looking at, at your career from the outside, one of the things that's striking is the number of different collaborators you, you've worked with. And, and I wonder if part of the reason why you do that is because you had this seminal experience of confronting somebody else's well, work. Well, that's exactly, that's exactly what happens when you, uh, when you find your place, yourself in a place of total ignorance of that kind. And that's a place where you can begin again, you can begin learning again. You know, the difficulty with any, well, it's not just artists or musicians, but with anybody in any ordinary part of life, or walk of life, the difficulty we have is how do we continue to learn. I mean, this is, everybody has this problem because you get what we call our training and education at a certain point, and we spend the rest of our life changing gears in the same way. And the biggest, uh, this is particularly true of composers, they, they pick up a style or a way of working in a certain way, but the real issue, uh, I've always said to younger composers, it's not how do you find your voice, but how to get rid of it. It's getting the voice isn't hard, it's getting rid of the damn thing. Because once you've got the voice, then you're kind of stuck with it. You've said to Terry Gross, in fact, she's asked you, do you ever um, try to compose so it doesn't sound like Philip Glass? I do it all the time, and I fail all the time. <laughs> I, I, I learn that the only hope of shaking free of your own d- description of music was to place yourself in such an untenable position that you had to figure out something new. That happened with Ravi Shankar in 1964, and I repeated that experience. Uh, I do it whenever I can. And that means constantly finding new people to work with. The, the thing is, is that as much as I try to do it, how 
Rarely have I actually succeeded. It's very humbling, actually, when you realize how hard it is to break out of your own training. It's very, very difficult. And how, how do you feel about that? I mean, is, is a well, person it's, it's, only allowed it's, one um, paradigmatic shift in their how, lifetime? How do, you know? how do I think about it? I think it's very difficult. I think that, uh, um, let me put it this way. Uh, if I look at the body of work of the last 30 years, and there are about 30 CDs, and if I look at it that way, and if I take a music that I wrote in 1969, let's say, uh, or 1970, like music with changing parts and musical parts, and then I compare it to Dracula, something I wrote last summer. If I listen to those two pieces together, they do sound like they were written. But on the other hand, if I look at pieces that were, were written within three or four years of each other, I don't hear that. It takes a span of 10 or 15 years for me because the, the changes are so incremental that I, don't, I can't notice them. But I, I, I can notice them over 20 or 25 years. I don't notice them over two or three years. I have to say one of the things as a listener that's striking about the newer pieces is that they seem much more romantic and melodic. Exactly. And you see, that was the, you see it depends where you start. Had I started, perhaps, with the romantic music, I would have ended up writing minimal music. But I started writing middle music, so I ended up writing romantic music. Basically, wherever, wherever, whatever I point I started was, I left that point. Composer Philip Glass and his cousin Ira Glass, the host of This American Life, recorded on stage at the Field Museum in Chicago in 1999. Philip Glass is celebrating his 75th birthday today, which is why this evening was chosen for the U.S. premiere of his Symphony No. 9 at Carnegie Hall. You can hear the first movement on our website, freshair.npr.org. Coming up, Ken Tucker reviews Leonard Cohen's new album. This is Fresh Air.